You've stopped in at the guidepost. Brought to you by the American Saltwater Guides Association. Stock up on gear, grab a coffee at the counter, and get ready to hear incredible fish stories from the best captains on the East Coast and thought-provoking conversations with stakeholders and policymakers working to protect these fisheries. This podcast is presented by Costa Sunglasses. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the first episode of season two of the Guidepost. We were shocked and happy. Uh, my gosh, I think we got over 10,000 downloads, Willie, on the uh, on the first season. And we weren't really sure if anyone was actually listening to us. Must be that so melodious southern drawl, Tony. That's all I have to it, say. Lores and then. That's what it is. Or it could be one other thing. It could be my giant Irish friend from Long Island and his New York accent. Uh, welcome John McMurray to the podcast. Come on, man. I don't have a New York accent. I don't know. I guess it depends <laughs> on who's listening to you. Yeah. yeah. The attitude makes up for the lack of accent, I guess. I that's, gotcha. That makes sense. That's where we're going. So we had a, uh, we taped a we taped a podcast right after the ASMFC meeting on October twentieth, and we were uh, we were wound up. We didn't check the sound settings. Um, our podcast guy basically called us in the morning and said, "Why don't Why don't y'all try and do that again?" So that's what we're doing today. Um, kind of want to give you guys a high level of of what went on at the at the Stripe Bass hearing. John wrote an incredible blog. It is a deep dive, but it is everything that you need to know about exactly where striped bass are today. Uh, you guys can check it out on our blog. But as a commissioner, you know, John John had his ass in the seat there and was was listening to everything and, and part of the process. So I'm gonna I'm gonna turn it over to John. I know he's had some pretty good fishing for stripers, but you know, that crap is just anecdotal. We know they're not doing well, but but John's got a pot of them, and he's he's catching the heck out of them over the last week or so. Um, so John, you know, what would you think about? Would you think about the meetings? I know there's positives yeah. and negatives. So so I'll get to that, but I want to clarify something about the good fishing that I'm having right now. Um, it's it's been pretty abbreviated, and to be perfectly honest with you, without you know stepping on my business at this point. Uh, you know, it's it's been a struggle. Everything started very late, um, and you know whether or not that's a consequence of of less fish around or not, I, I couldn't tell you for sure. But uh, the last few days, I've been crushing them. But uh, up to now, it's it's been a grind, dude. Seriously, a real real grind. I've been uh, busting my ass for a few fish every day. Did uh, Albie show up? Yeah, they did, uh, but they, they were 30 miles offshore. We, we didn't, you know, there's all sorts of crazy stuff going on this year. We didn't get, uh, we didn't get any bay anchovies. They're on some sort of super small herring-like thing, 20 miles off, 30 miles off. Um, I don't think Montauk had a real good run either, to be honest with you. Uh, but we did no, get you a know, few. I was, talking, I was talking to a friend of ours out in Connecticut um, who hit a rock with his boat, Taylor. And he's gotta he's gotta pull the boat and get some stuff fixed. But he's he was super super pissed because he said he's amazed they still have Albies close to his new place. 
So he's he's getting them, I guess, in the Eastern Sound. Albies aren't like striped bass where you could rely on them to be in the same places every year. They kind of move around. And you book trips on for Albies, but, you know, you kind of got to tell your guys to be flexible because it might not be there. Anyway, uh, it's funny that he busted his skeg because you go to Corey's shop in Connecticut and uh, alongside the wall are about a dozen to a half dozen outboards missing their skegs because Long Island Sound is full of rocks, man. Anyway, I guess we should get the striped bass, huh? <laughs> Yeah. yeah, yeah. So we got to. So you know just, what we should do for the guides association? We should start some like adjunct insurance skeg policy for boats because <laughs> uh, I think we I think we break I think we keep a couple of motor companies in business with lower units, man. Yeah, there's got to be some kind of rider for Long Island Sound, though. You know, it's rocks everywhere. Oh man. god. Yeah, it's like it's like it's like building a house on the Outer Banks. Like you. Just yeah, can't yeah. Get you bump bottom um, here, it's just sand. I don't have to worry about the rocks. <laughs> Mud, mud and sand, yeah, baby. Yeah. Um, so let's let's talk about our friend the striper. Um what what was your you know I, I was really I'm definitely a cup is half empty guy when it comes to fisheries policy and I'm just a I guess a bitter old man, but I I didn't you know, John, people were I, I applaud Megan Ware for the motion to have the TC look at rebuilding the stock, but like, it's not Megan Ware's fault. It's the board's fault that this wasn't done two years ago. That's number one. Number two, you mentioned it's going to slow down the process. So John, can you give us an overview of your thoughts on the meeting? Yeah. So I think the most important thing to remember here right now, but also moving forward, is that all we did in this meeting was decide what to include in the document. Uh, there were no real management decisions made. Uh, we are just discussing and hopefully agreeing on, on what options should be included in Amendment 7. Um, and, and with that in mind, I, I don't think there was any real terrible outcomes here. Um, if anything, and, and Tony, I, I'm a glasses half empty guy too, um, you know, but if anything, I, I think some good things came out of this meeting for sure. Um, I think you know the real the real success happened at the uh, at the spring meeting where we had all the real bad stuff taken out, particularly the uh, uh, the uh, adjusting of the reference points and and the theoretical lowering of the bar of what a healthy stock looks like, um, and and. With this meeting, I guess what we really addressed were the reference points, conservation equivalency, uh, protecting the 2015 year class, uh, discard mortality, and uh, there there's still some some bad options in there. Um, you know, nothing catastrophic, but some some options that could really set us back a little bit. But uh, you know, nothing nothing that I don't think we can't. Uh, beat down in the, the public comment process. Um, the, the big thing of note, which, which was mentioned, uh, is that uh, there was a motion by Megan Ware of Maine to uh, initiate a rebuilding plan. And uh, as you guys well know, uh, that was something that has been missing from Amendment 7 since its initiation, uh, which is, is conspicuous because it was very clear in the public record that that was intended to be part of the amendment uh, as the uh, rebuilding plan for striped bass. Um, 
one of the, tr the management triggers in Amendment 6 requires, or two of the management triggers actually, require that uh, if the stock is overfished, uh, then you have to rebuild it within 10 years of that determination. So the clock is ticking on that, uh, but there's been no real movement to initiate that rebuilding plan. And uh, just to clarify, we did address the overfishing part of it, um, but that stock has to rebuild in 10 years. And by just addressing overfishing, you don't, you don't get there in that 10 years. You have to have an, an F rebuild, an overfishing rebuild, uh, and you have, to, you have to have timeline and goals for making it happen. Um, so that was what that was the real noteworthy thing here, um, and we we definitely have our work cut out for us moving forward on on beating down some of these uh, bad options, particularly a, as it comes to the the management triggers and some of the new things they're proposing. But uh, I, I think overall is a, a pretty good outcome. So John, you would um, in in us talking, you had said you felt like you know, while Megan's motion was good and needed, that it might slow down the process. So we're, we're already, so they got to rebuild by 2029. They're not going to take management action. We're not going to see anything different in the regulations until 2023. So how much, including this, you know, giving it to the technical committee to, to do the work on it, how much do you think that's going to slow the process down? Well, it's it's undoubtedly going to slow the process down. And, you know, the intent was to put this out to public, put the entire document out to public after this meeting. Uh, and that didn't happen because of, uh, mainly because of, of Megan's motion to uh, initiate a rebuilding plan, but also uh, Dave Sikorsky from Maryland uh, included a motion to uh, protect 2015, 2018, uh, I think 2017 year classes uh, by looking at a, uh, a higher uh, size limit. I'm sorry, looking at a uh, you know a, a top size limit, something you didn't want to go over to protect those year classes. So that needs both of those things need to be vetted by the technical committee, vetted by commission staff, and uh, a full range of options need to be included under those 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 new pieces of Amendment 7. And that's going to take a little time, but it's really, it, it's not going to affect, you know, where we, we end up and, and what time, because even under the best case scenario, if this went to public next week, um, we still wouldn't have regulations in place until 2023. So yeah, this, this sets us back a little, but, but it's not really relevant in, uh, in the, the 10,000 foot level in the grand scheme of things. But it, it, you don't you don't think this could cause a train wreck? Because me and you know ASMFC. Yeah. So and then we're, uh, and then we're stuck paddling against uh, the current in 2023, and they're still not getting shit done, right? Well, it, I mean, let's face 100%, it. A hundred percent. Yeah, it it could absolutely cause a train wreck, and we saw a little bit about how that debate is going to play out with the rebuilding plan, with some of the comments from Maryland and New Jersey. You know, does it have to be ten years and do we have to make, uh, you know, female SSB, uh, you know, these all need to be, be part of the options. And, and yeah, man, this is going to create uh, some spirited discussion at the next board meeting. But I think what we also saw is that most of the states want this rebuilding plan, uh, and it's a handful of states that don't. I've been fooled before, uh, but I don't, I don't think this is going to jam us up to the point where we don't see 
uh, Amendment 7 regulations in place by 2023. I don't, I don't know if you're aware of this. Willie keeps trying to talk, and I just talk over him. I don't know <laughs> if you're aware of this, but that, that guy from Maryland that looked like a sinister animated villain from like a Bugs Bunny <laughs> cartoon in the 1950s, Bill Anderson, mm-hmm. he resigned. He did like a week ago. Yeah, I got some. I got some like messenger messages via carrier pigeon and strapped to the back of like box turtles because no one at DNR is allowed to talk to me, um, or they'll lose <laughs> their jobs. But they were like, it was like the house fell on the wicked witch. Like I think everyone was running around DNR throwing rose petals in the air. Mm-hmm. That that goofy pain in everyone's ass resigned. So sayonara it, I, I wish i could say it was fun but it wasn't so he won't be standing over mike luisi breathing down breathing in his ear making sure that mike kills the last striped bass do you think um, that that that'll change the dynamic of of maryland politics maryland fisheries politics no yeah i don't hell think no. so yeah hell no no but it'll make it better because you know basically you had a someone with a political appointee with less fisheries policy knowledge than our sons have <laughs> at 12 years old uh, running around. He was he was going to meetings back in the day saying that um, striped bass abort their eggs if you catch and release them. And he was referencing a study that was done on steelhead in like the 1970s in the Pacific Northwest. And like people had to pull him aside and be like, dude, you got to stop saying that. Right. Like it's there's no science to back that up but yeah he was running around everywhere he's Boy, he's the architect of that's a, he felt like his job was just to screw recreational anglers and do everything humanly possible to support no tony uh, let me let me ask you because this is anomalous amongst all east coast states but maryland doesn't seem to give two poops about the recreational fishing industry it's like their bycatch you know and, and everything that they do is bad and somehow imposing on the commercial fishery, which is the big, you know, breadwinner of that state. I, it, it's very odd to well, me. Well, like me and you, me and you know, like factually, that statement is wildly. A hundred percent. Yeah. Right? I mean, yeah. yeah, we're the and we never use this argument. Like you will never hear us say we create. X times the number of economy of the commercial fishery and striped bass. There's no, there's no more commercial striped bass fishery buy. And um, yeah, it's just, it's Don. It's just been the Hogan administration. Like if you, me and you've been doing this together a long time. Mm-hmm. And if you go back to like O'Malley, you know, I, look, I'm just talking about fisheries policy. I'm not, uh-huh. I'm not talking about politics. So like if if you go back to other governors. Um, man, you know, I remember when Ehrlich was governor here, he hired, um, believe it or not, he hired the guy. He was a dentist. Well, he, Mm -hmm. you know, was a political appointee. He was a friggin' dentist and he owned the fly shop. So like down the street from me, there's a dentist office. It's like a house on the water and it was a dentist office. And the little house next to it was a fly shop. It's called Winchester Creek Outfitters. It's gone out of business, but it was funny because you drive down the highway and you would see family dentistry and fly shop, you know, typical Eastern Shore, Maryland. So he, that was the secretary of DNR. 
Ron Franks. And when he, mm-hmm. when, when he came in, we were like, holy shit, the world is ours. You know, this, this is Ron. He owns the fly shop. I, I teach casting lessons there. I tie flies for him. He never spoke to us again. Like the day he took the position and he just handed, he just handed it over to the bad people. And then, mm-hmm. you know, O'Malley came in and he cared about the bet. And then Hogan is just like the fourth horseman of the apocalypse. Like, you know, daddy was a politician. He's a politician and just handed it over. And, and we're reaping, you know, the, the horror of the last eight years. But in Maryland, so, you can only yeah. get it elected twice to governor. No, I hear you. So and his I, time I is understand. coming to an end. So before we, we get too far down this road, and I could talk to you about this all day, we should probably get back to the Amendment 7 discussion. <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 Well, there. I mean, but that's, that's what's going on in Maryland, man. Yeah, no, I hear um, you. I hear you. But, you know, the interesting thing, I'll say one more thing about it. Where mm-hmm. Willie's from in Massachusetts, they're in a union. They don't... Mass DMF doesn't get calls from the governor. Mm-hmm. Says you got to vote this way. They they have all sorts of autonomy, all sorts of autonomy. Mm-hmm. You can't fire them, you know. They're, and and in, in Maryland, the, all the top people are political appointees, yeah. and you do what they say, mm-hmm. or you get, or you or you find another job. That's yeah. it. It's a terrible situation for DNR employees. You know, we talked about this rebuilding um, rebuilding motion that Megan Ware put forth that was approved that was passed by the committee. Um, or by the board. And there were some other, you know, pretty important discussions, I think, that went on. We talked about management triggers. We talked about release mortality. Uh, we talked about conservation equivalency. Um, maybe it makes sense to start with the triggers, John. I know there was a, a pretty robust discussion around that, and you were pretty vocal in that discussion. So it seems like there was some, you know, some encouraging news coming out of that conversation. Curious to hear your input. Okay. I guess I would start by saying what what's confusing about this whole management trigger discussion is that, uh, you know, the, the whole idea behind changing the management triggers are that they are too open to, to frequent changes. Like, we need more time to figure out if the striped bass really are overfished. You know, we need to look at a period of five years, and if they're overfishing out of five years, then we'll, we'll take management action. The way the management triggers are, are constructed now is that you know, if overfishing is occurring in one year uh, after you get the assessment, you have to address it by, uh, you know, reducing fishing mortality. And if stock is overfished, you have to rebuild it uh, like now, not in five years. Um, and the argument is that, uh, you know, it's it's fishermen want steady regulations and we don't want to be changing things every few years. But when you look at the last 17 years, there's only been two management changes and both of them uh, or when the stock was overfished uh, and or overfishing uh, was occurring. And that doesn't seem like a lot of back and forth and changing of regulations to me. Uh, it just seems like good fisheries management. So uh, it's hard not to see the intent as simply we want to figure out ways to, uh, you know, allow more harvest at a time when the science is clear that we should be reducing harvest. Um, so that, that seemed to be the genesis of most of these uh, options that are proposed. And um, like I said before, I, some of the real bad ones were taken out, like the, the five-year uh, requirement. Um, the the three, three-year one still remains. Uh, 
but they're but again they're just options and i think we could address them during the public comment period can you talk a little bit about you were talking about overfishing right and responding to that the other one that's come up come up a lot and is one of these places where we actually might be able to do something you know really good for striped bass management is around recruitment and i know you talked about it in your blog too but can you remind folks kind of what the discussion looks like there yeah, so it's the last management trigger, and uh, it addresses periods of poor recruitment. Um, and, you know, it, it gets pretty technical, and I'm not going to try to get into it because it's something that I have a hard time understanding, much less articulating it. Uh, but uh, the technical committee did a really good job of developing uh, a new way of looking at, at periods of, of low recruitment and addressing them. And one of the most noteworthy parts of that is that uh, on most of the options and, and most of the sub-options, there is a requirement to address poor recruitment in that year or that following year's regulations rather than a suggestion or, or suggesting that the, the management board address it. At any rate, uh, Willie, your your technical understanding of of the science is probably uh, orders of magnitude better than mine. So so maybe you'll do a better job of of explaining that. Yeah, well, I think just at a high level, John. You know, to your point, um, right now we often the, the bar for action uh, is really high when it comes to recruitment, and the the general premise of a lot of the options on the table are to lower that bar um, in a way that makes us more reactive if there's something not great going on with recruitment. So right now it's really if there's a catastrophic three-year three-year failure. And the real challenge here is to try to make our make us more nimble, make us more able to respond to when there's just not great recruitment. And we know that, you know, five years from now we're not going to have a lot of fish from that year class in the water. So let's do something about it. I think there's some some really encouraging opportunities there. And and one of the other noteworthy parts of the a part of this is that uh, uh, one or more of the options bases uh, bases the average on more recent years rather than an overall average because uh, there was a, a long time where recruitment was terrible because there was recruitment overfishing occurring pretty much there were no regulations at all up until a certain point um, so that will absolutely uh, lower the bar for for management action allow uh, the board. To, to make decisions based on, on much more recent data. Uh, and that will absolutely benefit the stock in the long run. Right on. Well, we'll, uh, well I think we'll, we'll certainly be vocal on that. I think a lot of other folks in the, in the straight bass fishing community will be too. Uh, let's get into the other, one of the other big topics was of course, recreational release mortality. And that really ran the gamut in terms of what's on the, what was on the table for amendment seven. There was talk about different closures. There was talk about different gear, to gear types and kind of how, how restricting gear types might impact mortality um, or, or reduce post-release mortality. Uh, what did you see as some of the major takeaways of that as we kind of continue to try to refine what alternatives will be in the amendment? Before I even address the options, uh, I think it's important to point out that this is a 90% recreational fishery. It's 90% catch and release. Um, you know, whether or not that catch and release occurs because of regulatory, uh, you know, because of regulations or whether it occurs because most folks throw their fish back in any case. I mean, it's a huge sport fishery. Of course, discards are going to be high. And, and I guess it's almost 50 percent. We all know that. 
Um, but it's an incredibly difficult thing to address because, you know, some of these time and area closure proposals and, and even the moratorium proposal, uh, which, which would be a harvest moratorium simply for the recreational fleet, um, there's no way to tell what sort of effect that'll have in overall fishing mortality because all those people who are not prone to catch and release can just switch to, to catch and release fishing. And so your discard mortality will go up. So, so anyway, my, my point here is that, you know, this is all kind of a red herring. It's a way to, to shift blame on the part of the fishing community. It's actually trying to do the right thing. Uh, it's actually trying to, to release some fish so they could catch them again next year. And so their kids could catch them. Uh, it, but if you really want yeah, to like, address John, this, you got to address harvest. Go listen, ahead. Tony. Statistically speaking, and I'm, I'm going to paint with a broad brush. The catch and release crowd is the crowd, I would say, that probably goes to the greatest extent to make sure that the fish are released healthy. Yes, there are people on Instagram with pictures. Yes, there, you know, yes, yes to all of that. Um, but, you know, in generally speaking, they are the tactics that they use and their awareness of how to keep a fish healthy exceeds the other stakeholders in the recreational community. And, you know, to put the burden on catch and release people, I mean, look, we've been managing our fisheries as catch and release as a, you know, a, an aspect to it for a hundred years. And we should all be jumping up and down, screaming bullshit at the top of our lungs. Um, because, I mean, how many times have we heard the law enforcement people say it's completely unenforceable, right? Mm -hmm. It's totally unenforceable. Yeah. So, so these no targeting proposals are completely ridiculous because if there's there's bluefish or scup or black, anything that's in the water, you're Spanish targeting them. Here. You're targeting them. You're not targeting striped bass. So to, to say no harvest, uh, the only thing it's going to do is screw the the uh, you know the the, ta the light tackle fleet that's targeting striped bass. Uh, they, that's going to be tough to prove they're targeting anything else. Um, and, and they are not the problem here. You know, they're not. They're simply not. Um, and and so it's a little bit frustrating. And um, also, that, and also. That, they're the biggest component. Yeah. So I, I think I, I think all, all these points need to be made during the public uh, comment period. Uh, this is, some of the more uh, egregious time and area closures were taken out during the uh, uh, during the meeting. But but a lot of them are in and, and we really have to to make our voice heard about. I'll tell you, silly I'm, all, some John, of these I'm all in. I'm all in for every group doing the heavy lifting to bring Stripe back pass back as quickly as possible. But, you know, one, one thing is like, if you look at Maryland and the closures that they had, okay, they didn't, they didn't say we're going to have a closure and conserve these fish. That was not, that was not why they said, we're going to have a closure and we're going to give all those fish to these other people. Right. That nothing about conservation. That was, it was it was shuffling numbers around 
so people could still continue unsustainable levels of harvest and putting all the burden on one user group who isn't as organized and as vocal as, you know, what, a thousand people in Maryland when you when you tack on the, the specific subset of the charter community that, you know, I mean, it's insane. Like I, I tell people, you know, there's a there's a subset of the community, the for hire community here that as soon as they get their limit, they go in and they take the next trip. Can you imagine paying, I don't know, thirteen, sixteen hundred dollars for you and five of your friends to hop on a boat and you run through a school of striped bass and reel in two of them and go home <laughs> in like an hour? I'd be like, dude, give me my money back. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, can you imagine doing that to your clients, John? Uh, it, I mean, it just, it doesn't happen every day. It doesn't happen up here. It just doesn't. So, so, the, you know, we had the, crazy. the seasonal stuff was in there. There was also the gear restriction stuff, uh, everything from gaffs to wire line. Uh, a bunch of those were taken out. I think the gaff restriction uh, as a possibility stayed in there. Uh, how do you think that conversation went, John? So I, well, uh, how it went was, a lot of the bureaucrats were saying, well, you know, trouble hooks, barbless hooks, you know, it's too hard to enforce. And we went through this <clears throat> with our circle hook provision. It's a nightmare. It's going to cause us a lot of work. Um, so those got taken out, the, the trouble hooks, uh, barbless hooks and uh, wireline trolling. That was ridiculous. That should have gotten taken out. No science behind that at all. I'm not sure why that ended up there. But it, it would have been nice to see those other ones stay in, at least so the public could, could comment on them. I, I didn't really want to see them taken out, but they were. Um, because, you know, even if it's not enforceable, you're going to have compliance for most of the fishing community. And, uh, you know, they're not using trouble hooks, barbell hooks, et cetera. They're common sense measures. Uh, they probably keep a few more fish in the water. Uh, but they were taken out and, you know, say la vie. Um, but I, I learned that gaffs don't hurt fish, John. Uh, yeah, that was Adam. I, that was educational. Yeah. You know, I, I didn't know harpooning a fish made it a great candidate for catch and release. So I want to, want to thank the, the commissioner from New Jersey for, for bringing that up that there's plenty of ways to gaff a fish. That's just fine. Mm -hmm. Well, at the risk of getting called out here, um, the way we release over tuna sometimes is we mouth gaff them, pop the hook, and let them swim away. Uh, it's not probably, a striper. it's not a striper, it's, and it's probably not the best way to do it. And we're starting to use these uh, part ago. Uh, they're like giant bogus. Um, but anyway, I don't want Jersey coming at me for for, for saying that. So my it's my disclaimer. Why not? They come at they come at me. All yeah, the that's time, true. So. They're going to come at us anyway, right? There's also always the balance of what do you regulate versus what do you kind of educate on, right? So just because you know there isn't explicit striped bass science on single hooks, treble hooks, or on on barb barbless, you know all you know about how you handle fish as well, you know taking fish out of the water. All like I think there's a huge opportunity there for education. And that's where groups like ours come in. That's where a lot of the state agencies will hopefully come in, depending on kind of how that component of the of the amendment goes through too. But you know just because those aren't going to be laws doesn't mean there isn't an opportunity to leverage some of those tools to to reduce post release mortality too. I think. And 100, percent I think education is good. It's a necessary component of all this, but. If you want people to stop using treble hooks or barbless hooks for striped bass, then you have to, you have to regulate. You have to 
you have to do regulate. Otherwise, people just won't do it. I mean, that's uh, simply the way Look, it there's is. There's tons of. I would love one of the, you know, catch and release scientists like Andy Danilchuk, and to to do some real science on it. I would love to see the results from Mass DMF because Willie, correct me if I'm wrong. I think. I think they're using a wide variety of hooks and, and methods to catch striped bass. And maybe we can glean a little bit of information from that work. And, you know, the whole thing is like, how disingenuous is it to, first of all, I mean, God, how, how disingenuous is it to start Amendment 7 when all you had to do was put in a rebuilding timeline? And then we're two years down this circus and somebody says, do a rebuilding timeline. And and it's like, good Lord, it took two years to get here. And then protect the 2015s, whatever. By the time this comes through, they're going to get annihilated. You know, it, yeah. at least it starts this, you know, next year. They're going to be in the meat grinder for the ocean. And they've been in the meat grinder for the bay for a couple of years. So, like, so, why are we even talking about this? Like, So the, the backstory... The bus left the station. The the backstory to all so and and listeners need to understand this. The, the backstory to all this was that uh, this was initiated by Maryland, New Jersey, and Delaware to try to change uh, the reference points to try to essentially lower the spawning stock biomass reference point that constitutes a healthy stock. Uh, they didn't get that. Um, it, the only thing we needed to do an amendment for is to change the goals and objectives of the manager. That's the only thing you, you technically need an amendment for. We could have done a rebuilding plan and an addendum. We could have addressed protecting the 2015s in, the, in an addendum. We could have addressed conservation equivalency in an addendum. Uh, this was all to try to change the goals and objectives with the end goal of changing the reference points. And they didn't get that. So here we are like two, day, two years down the road, we haven't done anything. No, I haven't done shit. So John, here's my question. Do you think this was like plan B? Like, oh, we'll just screw around and, you know, go in the tilt the world that is the commission. And, uh, and we'll, at least we'll have a couple of years and knocking the piss out of the 2015 class. You think that was like plan B? Uh, I don't think it was plan B. I think it was just, this is how things worked out. The, the public comment during that first round of, of, uh, of Amendment 7 issues, all that stuff got taken out. And they didn't, they didn't think that was going to happen, and it did. And now they're like, well, now what the hell do we do? We, might, we, get, we have this amendment, we got to finish it, and this is what we're going to keep in it. I mean, there's still areas where they could screw around with the with the management triggers and and postpone management action when it's needed. Uh, that's kind of like their only uh, you know their only opportunities here. Uh, but no, I don't, I don't think they planned it that way. Maybe I mean I you know you never know. Um, I, I certainly think that starting the amendment process, they knew, come hell or high water they'd have a couple of years to get after the 2015s. I mean, again, my point is like, we, we should have protected the 2015s in 2019. It is 2022. They're seven years old. Like we are the, the horse left the friggin' barn. Let's rebuild these fish. 
how, how long are we going to how long are we going to just twiddle our thumbs? And and the scary thing is, John, you know, you diversified your business. You you have the ability to focus on tuna and thank God, you know, for Menhaden and, and bait aggregations and, and the unbelievable tuna fishing you had this year. You know, it it keeps you going. Can you imagine if you had to rely on stripers? Jesus Christ. What would you had like a two month season? I would be in trouble. Um, but, but I will say this and you know, I, I hope I'm not wrong and I hope I'm not saying something that's completely out there, but it seems like this slot limit is protecting an awful lot of fish. Um, and that that's anecdotal, uh, you know, we, we're getting big fish here and we're getting small fish here. We're not getting fish in that slot limit. There's not many keepers around. And, and I, I'm just speaking regionally. I don't know what's going on in Massachusetts. I don't know what's going on in Maryland. Uh, but when we had that initial uh, assessment update, I guess it wasn't an assessment update. It was just an update. Uh, it does look like that slot limit is reducing fishing mortality significantly. Uh, so I think there's some hope here. Uh, you know, I... I think effort too, John. Yeah. 100%. I think effort's falling off the friggin' charts for stripers. People just aren't going out. They're fishing for other stuff. I think that's and right. And I think I ultimately, do. if anything, to save stripers, that's going to be it. Because I'll tell you, I'll give you a redux of what's going on in the bay. Uh, out at the mouth of the side bay that I live on, in about 28 feet of water, there's a pile of 12 inch stripe bass. 12 inch. And beyond that, you just you just kind of get lucky, or, or or you have to be like, I mean, imagine this, John. Like, hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna drive forty miles in one direction, so maybe I can catch a twenty seven inch striper. In the like, I'm not doing that. Screw that, man. Like, that's a lot of fuel. And I don't know. I lived through the heyday of stripers. I, I'm not doing like an eighty or ninety mile round trip. For a twenty-five inch striper, man, it's just not happening. That's my pain point. All right, so John, we've talked about recruitment triggers. We've talked about rebuilding. We've talked about discard mortality. The other big topic that's still in Amendment Seven uh, that that was going to be part of this draft amendment is conservation equivalency. We know that during the October meeting, the option to completely prohibit conservation equivalency was taken off the table. Uh, you seem pretty upset with that decision. Can you give us a little more info on that? Well, uh, you know, there, there are some states that depend on conservation equivalency. Um, you know, certainly there are some states that use it to game the system, but there's also some states that, for instance, New York, who doesn't have a, data, a sufficient data gathering program for the Hudson River that need conservation equivalent regulations uh, for, for a real reason, uh, for a real uh, biological and, and management reason. Uh, so I didn't, I didn't really expect that option to be, uh, to, to make it in the final document as, as the preferred option. Um, but I, I did think that taking it out at this point was premature because I, I think it's something that the public really needed to, to comment on and to express their, uh, their frustration with with the states who are using it uh, to get more fish for their guys and at the detriment of of the coastal uh, striped bass stock. 
Uh, so I would have liked to, to see it remain in. That that being said, my recollection is that most of the other options for kind of reining in conservation equivalency and how it's used are still in there, right? Yeah, I, I mean, the idea is to, to kind of front load conservation equivalency uh, regulations to prevent states from, from using them for the wrong reasons uh, rather than prohibiting them altogether and, and requiring the states to be accountable if they don't work. Let's, uh, let's put in these regulations that will ensure that they are used for the right reasons is that they do work. Um, you know, there's some really good options that stayed in, like prohibiting conservation equivalent regulations when the stock is overfished or overfishing is occurring. There's also an option about requiring a certain level of precision in a state's data for conservation equivalency to be used. And there's also options about conservation. And that kind of that kind of puts the burden back on this. That kind of puts the burden back on the state, right? In terms of increasing, you know, the, the survey intensity and all that stuff. So if you're going to do this, there's a price to pay yeah. in terms of having better. So the data. onus is yeah. on them, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think the conservation buffer options are good. If you're going to do a conservation equivalency program in your state, uh, understand that uh, because there's not precision in, in whether or not those will be effective that you have to have to have uh, an uncertainty buffer there. Um, so that should prohibit some states from going down that road. And, and you know, I was, I was bummed to see that, that one portion taken out, but really it was the only thing that was taken out. All, all the other good stuff uh, is staying in there. And, uh, you know, it, it provides... Uh, a lot to for the public to to digest and comment on, and I, I can't imagine this stuff won't make it to the final document. At least some of it, and it really should put some guardrails around the current uh, conservation equivalency program. Do you, John? Do you think um, you think it's going to come out for comment uh, in the uh, after the February meeting or the January meeting, rather? Uh, I, I do. Um, you think the document's going to be finalized, or, or do you think that like looking at the rebuilding plan is going to kick it to where they're not going to finalize the document until May? that? That's entirely possible, and I, I don't think problems with the rebuilding plan, you know, technical problems, and, and more analysis is going to be the cause of that. I think it would be some states objecting, um, but like I said before. Those states seem to be a minority, uh, and it does seem like most of the coastal states, you know, want to want to push this through. They want the rebuilding plan. Um, I don't think Sikorsky's motion is unreasonable. I don't imagine that's going to jam anything up. Uh, I'm I'm optimistic, but you know, it, you and I have have been watching the commission operate for an awful long time, and you know, uh, if there's a snag, they're gonna they're gonna get it, and. We'll see what happens. Well, John, here's the here's the thing that they don't realize, like that the you know the, the folks who would try to delay this don't get. If that if that final document is approved in February, we comment really in March or January, March, and it'll wind down in April and May. So the upside of that for outreach and advocacy and stuff is that a lot of people won't be fishing because that's a terrible, you know, a lot of our guys may be down in Florida chasing tarpon or something, but there's really not a hell of a lot going on where we are. And, you know, if they punt it to May, that would mean that comments would come out June, July. 
And I got to tell you, I don't think next year is going to be great anywhere in June, July. And that's going to drive comments through the roof, through the roof. So, you know, it's a little it's a little game they're playing and it might actually blow up in their face. Yeah, well, if they if they keep delaying it, because you you get a comment period during the smack dab middle of striper season and it's as bad as I think it's going to be. Get ready for the comments. Well, the, the flip side of that is, uh, you know, people are fishing in that time period. And you're going to get a lot of you're going to get a lot of guys that say no, it's quite a, it's a bit a of guys point. that are going to be like, forget this, man. I'm fishing in my free time. I'm not going to, you know, sit down yeah. and, and do comments. I'm, I'm going out in the beach and, and throwing plugs. So well, I, I don't know. We'll see. There's there's it could go either way. Yeah, for sure. Well, I guess that's about going to wrap up. Episode one, season two for the guidepost. We didn't insult anyone too bad. I'm sure people still write hateful things about me and John. No more than usual. <laughs> I think we were light on this one. I, I think if people had heard the first one we recorded, yeah, like <laughs> 20 minutes after a seven-hour meeting, yeah, there could have been a couple of there could have been a couple of articles flying around. You guys were hot, yeah. no doubt. Yeah. But yeah, hopefully. So was it really an audio issue? <laughs> Fueled by caffeine and 24-ounce IPAs, yeah, baby. Yeah. Um, we're going to avoid that. We're going to try to tape our podcast in the morning, hence 2-4. Yep. Uh, not in the evening. You know? Good idea. Um, so, yeah, I think it'll go in the right direction then, John. So, listen, thanks, everyone, for listening. Thank you, uh, Captain McMurray, for joining us and sharing your time on the commission. And Anytime. Willie, I'll figure some way to unplug your microphone next go around so you don't drive me crazy. I'll find a way, Tony. I always do. <laughs> <laughs>